Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mojo Moments. I'm your host, Thane Calder. For the final episode of the first season of Mojo Moments podcast, we want to look back on some of the best moments of the season. We discussed a range of topics with our guests and feel the answers are major mojo boosters. We start with an excerpt from the episode with Andy Nolman of Play the Future, where he discussed one of the greatest stunts he pulled off and how his path has crossed with, yes, Donald Trump on multiple occasions. So listen up. You told me once a story, and I want people to hear the story, of the time, I think it was with Airborne, okay, when you went to a conference. It was something about you, were, you had to do some promo and self-promo thing, and you only had a dollar or something. Oh. Wait, just a little context. So Airborne, could just give a little context on Airborne then. If Airborne was, we were in the mobile media space, and we used to go to these conferences, CTIA, Southern Telecommunications Industry of America, which was this massive conference in New Orleans, San Francisco, Atlanta, uh, New York. And they would take over the Javits Center or the Moscone Center in San Francisco. And there would be thousands upon thousands of people, Verizon and Sprint and, and Samsung and Sony. It was the mobile industry. And the teeny weeny part of the mobile industry at the time was mobile content. So we had to go ahead and try and make a splash. And it was hard because we were a teeny weeny company amongst all these other people. So what we did, other companies did, we gave out t-shirts, pens, bouncy balls, and we would spend a fortune on this stuff. And it had zero impact, zero. And I would be freaking out all the time and saying, it's a waste, we're wasting money. Nobody gives a shit. You know who picks this stuff up? The, the scroungers who go booth to booth to, to say, well, let me bring stuff for my kids. So I'll get balls and t-shirts and pens and shit. And I said, we can't do it. And it was costing us a fortune. There were $5 a unit, $6 a unit. And I'm saying, that's crazy. We're pissing away money. I said, I want to do something. Let's find something we can do for a dollar. What can we do for a dollar? And they brainstormed. They came up with ideas. And nobody, we couldn't find anything for a dollar. So then, for some, I don't know how it came about. We said, okay, we're going to change the word. Never mind, what can we do for a dollar? What can we do to a dollar? Bang. And that, so we said, okay, let's get a dollar bill. And here it is. So what can we do to a dollar? We could print on it. We can do stuff. So anyway, the ironic thing about this is how we introduced this. We said we need a product. And the product we were launching at the time was, this is so insane, Donald Trump's Real Estate Tycoon. It was a game that was played on your phone. This is pre-iPhone. This is a WAP, you know, a wireless app application protocol uh, technology. And Which we, is super pixelized. And everything, yes, right? and we had actually Donald Trump audio recordings that would pop up in the game and he would tell you stuff and he would tell you how, what a bad deal that was or, that, or give you real estate tips. I said, There's, this is true. We, dealt, we were dealing with Donald Trump. So we said, what can we do for a dollar? So we, we, these are real dollar bills. We took a thousand of these and we printed on them. It says there are only two ways to beat Donald Trump. One, collect a few billion of these. Two, play Donald Trump's real estate tycoon. And then it gave... Visit Airborne to booth number 638 or go to com. So we these cost us a dollar. And we printed on them. We had a thousand of them. And anyway, I can tell you a ton of stories how we just left them on the ground. People didn't, th you know, didn't think they were real. And it all came to a head where uh, we had about 750 of these left. And I was speaking on a panel um, with a guy named Trip Hawkins. And Trip Hawkins was the head of EA, Electronic Arts, and Trip Hawkins was like the, the superstar. Oh, everywhere he walked, Trip Hawkins, uh, Trip Hawkins is here. Yeah, it's EA, man. It's oh, man. So we were so like lucky to be on the panel with this guy. We have a bunch of zero nobodies and then Trip Hawkins. So 
what we all had a chance because we paid for the 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 opportunity to be on this goddamn panel um, to pitch our project. So at one point in time, they said, um, you know, and we talked about, I was talking about Donald Trump's real estate tycoon. And I said, we said, we, we thought to ourselves, how are we going to launch this? And I said, let's do it the way that Donald would appreciate it. And at that point in time, I stood up and had four people standing up in the room. Each of us had about 150 of these dollars in our hand and we threw it in the air. <laughs> and people didn't realize what was going on. And they looked up, they had no idea. Now they're, they're coming down like, you know, little snowflakes. Like yeah. And then suddenly people realized, okay, well, Holy shit, it's real money. And that caused a pandemonium. And people freaked out. They were fighting each other, jumping each other, flipping over tables. And it, it caused so much pandemonium. Trip Hawkins, I'll never forget, said into his microphone, oh my God, how do I follow this? And you know, once they we finally brought decorum into the room, still the room was buzzing and everyone was you know, looking at the money they had or the money they could have had. And basically the panel session was destroyed. And because of that, <laughs> I got kicked out. I got banned from the conference for life because of <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> this was a pre-conference at CTA, thank God, because I was allowed into the, the, the big one. But I got banned from this conference for life. But for years after, for years after, people came up to me and said, are you throwing dollar bills again? Are you throwing dollar bills again? Are you throwing dollar bills again? Because it had such an impact. And that it killed me two things. Two lessons were one, you have to take the shot. You have to take the shot, you know, versus the bouncy balls, the pens. You have to take the shot. And two, once you do something great, file it, put it away because everyone will, that's what, let's do it again. No, you don't want to do it again. You want to find something brand new, better, crazier, wilder, more impact versus, well, that was, that worked. So let me go and do it again and again and again, diminishing returns until it becomes, you know, a bouncy ball in the pen. I love that story. Do you think that Mr. Donald Trump remembers that? You know what's so funny? Going through all my stuff, I, it's amazing the connections we had over the years. This, there was an article in the Globe and Mail when, when Airborne was one of the uh, Fast 50 companies of Deloitte. We were actually number one in Canada that year. And the headline was, these guys have Donald Trump on the line. That was the first, that was the Globe and Mail story. I, I used to do a lot of speaking, and at the time, the, the people I did the, the speaking for, they had all the speakers write an article, and they published this magazine that they would give out at all these big speeches where, where you know, six or seven of us on, on the bill at one time. And I found this magazine with uh, Hillary Swank on the cover, and I looked down the sides of people who wrote articles, and it was me and a couple other people, and Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, I may add. So I had to <laughs> laugh at it, you know. I, there's nobody I, I think I dislike more on, on earth at this stage of the game. And it's so funny how our, 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 um, our paths were, were crossed so often. That was from our first episode with Andy Nolman and how he harnessed a brazen capitalist. Now let's shift gears to our last interview of the season with Julian Giacomelli from Rise Kombucha. He's deeply interested in how capitalism and sustainability can work together. Here's his thoughts on that. We've had these conversations, you know, around capitalism and sustainability. Like, where are we at? Like, where's the mojo around this today in the business world? And what are you seeing out there? And how do you feel things are going to come out of this COVID era on that front? It's a nuanced question. I, I think that we're living a lot of paradoxes. We're living a lot of tension. And so we're, we're simultaneously living in the era where the gods are billionaires and 
most of those folks that have become billionaires aren't doing anything or very much proactively to help the problems we're having. And a lot of the time it's almost contributing to. So there's still a lot of extractive capitalism. We're simultaneously seeing a ton of more mainstream initiatives and a lot more interest in particular in climate change. So the awarenesses are growing. I think in the business world, we're seeing certainly broader adoption of at the most base level for large companies is ESG. So, so paying attention to ethics and sorry, environmental, social and governance. You know, we're seeing definitely an increase in things like the B Corp, which is an effort for a business to get certified and think about how it can be better holistically taking into account, you know, multi-stakeholders. Is there a lot more going on on the ground yet? No, I don't think so. I think that the COVID circumstances we're under is actually, from that perspective, a positive one in terms of, I do believe that consumers have naturally gone back to more local or somehow a little bit more connected to trying to support what's good from where they are. I think that we're going to be going through a series of continued shocks that are going to create more urgency for us to change the way we live and the way we do business. And it's hopeful, but it's still, let's just say it's not enough. Um, but I am happy to be seeing a greater instance of things going on. And I think one of the most promising things is I spent a lot of time working with young entrepreneurs, especially in the social and, and uh, environmentally impactful spaces. And that there does seem to be a growing resistance for young folks to work for the man and do things that they don't believe in. It's promising. It doesn't mean you know there's not enough opportunities. So you've got all these young folks that want to do more purposeful things. And unfortunately, there aren't the jobs or even the entrepreneurial opportunities. But I do believe that those are the right forces at work and that we have to go this route. So I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, because I think there's a simultaneous rise of interest and say consciousness around how we consume and how we want to be in business and also a rise of the sort of the 1% getting richer and, and those folks that have figured stuff out, allowing them to, to do like, continue that accumulation at an increasing rate. So there's sort of the, the rise of the good and the bad at the same time. Do you feel when you look back on your era with Rise Kombucha that you guys did it right? Or is there something, if you could go back, you would have maybe done differently? I think we did a lot of things right. More than anything, participating in growing a business. And you know, especially with Crudescence, if I look at between Crudescence and Rise, the number of employees and staff and folks that we touched and worked with is in the several hundreds, like maybe 500 or plus. And each of those folks had a chance to work in a different mindset kind of business. I think the one thing that I wish we had done a little bit more of in Rise in particular in the early days was to concretize and articulate better actually the values that we wanted and, and what we wanted to see change in the world. I think what happens is, you know, and you've been in entrepreneurial circles for a long time. As soon as this something starts to go well, the focus is on the scaling. And we all, we all aspire to have businesses that scale. And I'm not advocating at all that we should look for businesses that only stay small. In fact, my current work these days is trying to find those teams that are scaling, that have some ability to scale. And in those early days, not year one, because year one, two, and three, you're just trying to figure out product market fit. What's the margin? Is there even a product for us? You're not worried about how do we come together? How do we organize? How can we have better values? I think some of that's innate. But it's in those years, sort of three, four, five, say, maybe a bit earlier in the fast scaling, that it is really important to buckle down and ask you know, the ownership and founding team how we want to be and what are the values we really want to keep. Because if you don't, as you scale, then that can get diluted and lost. And I wouldn't say it was completely gone from Rise at all. Rise is an amazing place to work. 
but there was a bit of a period in the middle where there was such a focus on just delivering the product and we were scaling the accounts and scaling the batch sizes that a lot of the ways of coming together and some of the early values were inadvertently lost. And if you don't intentionally hold that as a leader, then it won't hold itself. So I think that's probably the only area that I, I wish we had leaned in a little bit. But then we were in those days, we were just like, holy crap, we got to, how do we make more? Like just, we couldn't make enough. Yeah, yeah. So easy to say, hard to do. And I think the only way it could have happened was being better prepared. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you don't know what you don't know. So I think part of my interest now in mentoring and working with these younger founders is that in the hopes that the ones that are lucky enough to be finding that need and market and product or service to try to help them earlier on think about as we scale, how do we want to be coming together? What are the values we really want to live? And how does that show up in the business? Because it's the last frontier. No one, everyone's talking about you know, impact models and margin, but no one talks about what's the organization structure and what's the mindset and how do we build a culture that really, at the end of the day, once you figured out the product market fit and you can do that, it's only about how you bring the people together. And it's only about the values that you can create. And if you can create a culture where people care more that everyone understands why we're coming together and there's some kind of manifesto or purpose, then they will give more and naturally the product will keep getting better and you'll do well. And there was a bit of that missing in the middle years of Rise. It's really interesting you say that because I've had many conversations with entrepreneurs around like scaling is a bitch. <laughs> it's a royal bitch. I mean, I know CloudRaker, you know, we've done well, but the scaling part is a whole other kettle of fish, you know. When you look out in the world, have you seen businesses have done that right? Or one that you would go, that one I feel scaled right and had the true, you know, captured their values? A few, I mean, you know, they're often named, you know, we, I look to Patagonia sometimes for good leadership and having really brought the values together. There's a fascinating book by Frederick Lalu called Reinventing Organizations. And he's gone and found almost 15 organizations, and many of them are unknown. So, you know, I could name some of the other classic Western ones that are now attaching some of these values, but I don't believe that they grew that way. Like Denon is doing an amazing job of becoming a B Corp and trying to reverse engineer some of that stuff, but they got to scale through selling bad candy. So I don't think that's... Who you mean the Denon yogurts? Yes. So Patagonia is a good example. There are still few and far between. So this is why my thesis right now is that we are going to find more of these organizations. Etsy was a good example in many ways. The founder of Etsy and a lot of the way they were really motivated by both power of e-commerce, but also really uplifting individuals and, and not just commoditizing and selling. What about Chabani? Chabani is an example. I mean, he, he's a powerful force. The, the early years, it was amazing. You know, but if you walked in today to the Chavani offices, I don't know. I have, I'm literally, I'm not saying no, but I don't know that they've necessarily been able to, if you don't ground it in everything about the company, it just gets slowly diluted. It happened at the body shop. Joyce was an amazing founder. It happened at Ben and Jerry's. And the legacy of that would be that a company at that scale, coming close to a billion dollars, would have a place where people really love to work. You know, we hear about Zappos. I don't know. These are all examples that I've heard about, but until I visit and walk the floor and talk to employees, it's hard to know how much of it is like. It's interesting in, in the advertising world, there's a, you know, a famous agency back in the day, uh, Chiat Day. Yeah, that was the place. They're the ones behind all the Apple, famous Apple ads. And Jay Chiat once was quoted as saying, we want to see how big we can get 
before we get bad. <laughs> and the day that happens, I'm out. And that's when he's sold. <laughs> I think even, I think honestly, even maybe another example that I think did incredibly well for a long time is Lululemon. And I say that because you can tell more about how a company is doing when the staff get excited talking to you about their work than what the, the consumers say about the product. Because a lot of companies make products that are drool worthy and that people love. And Lululemon had a culture of learning had a culture where the stores engaged their staff that were simply clerks selling clothes in a way that made them feel like they were doing more, engaged them in personal growth pursuits, gave back to the community. So where would you say they are now? Have they recaptured their mojo? I mean, their stock has, but do you feel... I don't know. Then, then there's always like the founder leaves through pseudo crises and the new folks come in and say, what, you're spending 20% a year on this and we cut that? So I don't know. I know that it's still a good place to work from a creative perspective, but I'm not sure if they've been able to recapture that. It's also really hard. I mean, the first 10 years of a business are never like the next 20 because you you're still feel like you're part of that original arc. You still feel like you can remember when there was only whatever, 100 stores or 50 stores, or I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, it needs to evolve. It can't stay the same. Like we could never go back to the time in Rise when we were in the 500 stores in Quebec and there was like literally mob scene when we would launch a new something new and we were local and all of a sudden it's very different than when we started selling in Vancouver and even in the beginning of the US because you could never be that same local business. So you have to find a way to evolve and repurpose almost around the same visions, but it, it's different when the scale is hyper-local versus you know, pan-Canadian versus something else. You can really see how important values are for businesses, especially as you scale. Now, when we spoke to Bernard Mariette from Lole, that's one thing we dug into. So how do you start something like Lole White Tours, scale those all the while keeping your values? The core of the show, and we want to deep dive into whatever it is that makes things special and interesting. And, and, and obviously, we're talking to business pioneers. So in your story, and one of the things you've done that, that really inspired me and I think a lot of people is your Lole White Tours. Not everyone knows about them, but just give a little descriptor on that. And I'd like to dive into that a bit. The Lole White Tour is a concept of events around the world, which are exceptional for several reasons. The first one is people are coming for yoga session in white and on yellow mats. It happens that they are lowly, but they could be any other brand. They come to experience a kind of emotion and community, but also to experience yoga at a beginner level. So you see families coming, you see kids coming, you see men coming. And the emotion it creates to be together in an incredible place. I mean, we've done Central Park, the Eiffel Tower, the Grand Palais in Paris, the Parc Jean Drapeau in Montreal, the Vieux Port in Montreal. We've done, we've done it like in many, many places. And you did we, it even in the Louvre, I think? Yes, in Museum, in MoMA. And we have like a, a lineup of places which are just unbelievable in Asia. And how many people are we talking? We're talking between 5,000 and 12,000. I haven't been to one, but I've seen pictures of them. Oh, they're just unbelievable. First of all, they're incredibly visually, just visually. Yeah. So I can't even imagine being there live. Like what's... So, you know, like, first of all, if people don't come in white and they come in black, well, they come in black. 
And that was one of my concerns. But you will be very surprised. I was very surprised, especially by French people in France. Like we say, well, it's a white yoga session and we want everybody to come in white and you have to pay 35 euros for that. And you have to be there at seven o'clock on Sunday morning. So I was really concerned that we were going to get nobody and the few French we were going to get were going to not dress in white. Well, guess what happened? So we opened the entries. So instead of booking 5,000, we booked a little bit more than 10,000. And I thought even with that, I doubt we... we oh, so you're like people register, but they won't show up. Yes. Yeah. We call them no-show. Okay. At uh, seven o'clock in the morning on the Champs-Élysées, there was a lineup of people dressed in white until halfway to the Champs-Élysées. And when we filled by 5,000 people the Grand Palais, there was the same amount waiting. And I had the duty to go and tell them, look, I'm sorry, uh, it's full. Fit you in, yeah. And remember, it's French people. So they have a kind of culture of being upset. So I walk all the way to the line, one by one, saying, I'm very sorry, it's full and we cannot accommodate you. We'll try to do another one. And there's not one single person who got upset with me. Everybody said, thank you for coming to let us know. And they left. It was unbelievable. But then the magic inside was just like to the next level. Everybody cried. I cried. It was just magic. And I'm just picturing like people seeing all these people going, you know, there's always strikes. Every time I go to Paris, there's a strike. And, but people are like, what strike is this? Everyone's in white. What is this one all about? And this was the first time you did it in Paris? That was the first time in Paris. Why do you think people were gravitating towards this? I don't think anymore. I'm sure about it. I can see that people get less and less together. You go to a restaurant and you look around you. I mean, that's very interesting. And you see people eating together, but both on the telephone. So it's easier to connect. Today, I have the impression it's easier to connect with somebody on your phone than with somebody physically. But I think people are missing this, being together. People are missing a kind of communion, not uh, religions or whatever, but being together, sharing what 99% of the people share, which is peace, harmony, beauty, music, all these things. When we created the White Yoga Tour, my idea was to put together everything I love. And the team in Lole who has executed that, and one of them is Natalie Benda. And I've got to say, she surpassed the vision I had. But for example, the vision was about being together, young and old, women and men, people educated and people non-educated, rich and not as rich and even poor. And the idea was to put together everybody feeling good. And to feel good, you have to erase the distinction, what created distinction. And if you really look, it was like the cleanness of Californian new wave mm -hmm. combined with some clean, I mean, it was looking like a military type of thing. Like, yeah, because it's quite Cartesian, everyone's yes. lined up. So when you mix both, I mean, you create this emotion and the music gets to the next level. Oh yeah, because that's one of the key features, which we didn't mention, is there's always music. Live music at the center, whether it's... I mean, in Paris, it was the opera, okay. the orchestra of the opera, because I told you I wanted to put everything I love. So it was about aesthetic. It was about peace. It was about sharing everybody inclusive, not exclusive. So the White Yoga Tour is really like one of the best thing I've done in line with my values and my vision. And did you see that coming? Is this something you'd been kind of percolating on for years or did it just 
Hum. No, no, it's very strange. I know where it's coming from because I walk around all the time. I share with people like you. I share with thousands of people. Truly share. Not with an agenda. Share. Be interested by what they're doing. And something always sticks to you if you truly open and you truly listen. And then you don't know why, but one day, boom, it's popping out. And so I love being with people sharing the same thing. And in Spain and France, we have something called Les Fêtes de Bayonne and the Pampelona party. And it's unbelievable. Everybody's in white with a little red scarf. And you see kids like three years old and 80 years old. And they're all dressed in white and they go out and they party. And of course, at the end of the day, uh, late at night, it degenerate into a too heavy party. And potential red wine stains. on. Yeah, it's not as white, exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's a communion. And I tell you, they don't spend their time on the telephone. They are together and they're having fun. And it's great. It's just great. So I always thought I like this kind of unity through one color. And I like this inclusivity from old to young from, for everybody. And one day I went to a yoga event on Times Square and it was noisy, dirty. Everybody was wearing whatever they wanted. So there was no unity. When I joined, I didn't have a ponytail. I was not an expert in yoga. So everybody was looking at me. Oh, this guy. And I could tell that it was exclusive. Oh, you had to do a headstand to be able to be coming to this thing. So I thought, wow. That's not what I thought about yoga. I thought yoga was peace, serenity. And this is where I had the epiphany. Okay, I'm going to do one in Times Square with all the advertising screen in white and yellow, speaking about peace. I'm going to stop the traffic. And in the middle, I'm going to do this event. So <laughs> I tried, and of course, it was just impossible. Essentially, because all those screens are like, no, no, pay us. That was the story. Because was the city on board to do it? Yes, the city was on board. And... Uh, I got some of the advertising saying, fantastic, we're going to, to do it. But of course, you always have the odd one saying, oh, I'm going to take advantage of it and I'm going to do my ad. So it was either we do it perfect, either we don't. So I decided that we were going to start in Montreal. And again, the city was great. We did it at the Olympic Stadium. Yeah. It was just magic. And then after Central Park uh, accepted the MoMA, all the museum, you know, in Spain, in France, this thing could have a life on its own. So interesting because what you've done, there's so many layers of this, but you've, you've brought not in a narcissistic way, but a real personal passion and interest. Something that's really meaningful to you yeah. to a business. You know, when people think of business, they always think of like selling and transacting and where you, you've essentially said you felt comfortable blending those things. It's more than comfortable. The reason why I started in Lolly Team is because I realized I could integrate my values, all my values into this brand. And it happens that my values were in line with the culture of Montreal, in line with uh, the current trends, which is about taking care of the planet, taking care of people around you, taking care of yourself, your health, but not only your physical health, your mental health. That's the luxury I decided I was going to live, is to live within my passion surrounded by people who were sharing the same passion. So there's nothing better. I don't call it work, honestly. I call it my life. And uh, the people who were with me at Lollier or the people who were with me at Quicksilver, they're my friends. They're truly my friends. And I still see them. I still share the same thing. I mean, when somebody uh, in surfing is not doing well, I'm writing to him saying, what the hell is going on? That's the way I want to live. And then, yes, I'm selling clothes because I also love clothes and kind of fashion, lifestyle. 
I believe that everybody is wearing clothes at the end of the day. And so we have to do something good for them and mix everything. So as you can see, Bernard is a really meditative guy. He really thinks about those deeper issues of why he's doing things a certain way and what they mean. But what if you're an executive who's looking to do some more of that soul searching to connect or reconnect with your values? Well, that's why we chatted with Ellen Antonio. So you work with, and I'm going to stereotype, I'm going to say cigar chomping executives, but... <laughs> Very driven, I imagine, very, um, you know, success-oriented individuals. Yeah, and their teams. And their teams, yeah. okay. So what's your secret sauce, if you will, to keep their mojo or if they've lost it, to get it back or... My secret sauce, well, usually, <laughs> so I don't actually prescribe a secret sauce. Because we're trying to get the free version here. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, but I, I don't. <laughs> I wish there was one. Just give me a pill. I want a pill that can I can lose weight and then I can have the secret sauce to success. So obviously it's a process. If someone has lost their mojo through conversation, it's a process that you lead where you try to have them again, once again, step back from their current situation. And you start by trying to see or visualize, you know, what's the kind of human being that I want to be? And not just what do I want to do. It's not a CV thing. It's more a, how do I want to be? How do I want to be in this world? What contribution do I want to make? And so it's hard to do. It's hard to sort of project your ideal self, but you know, it's to try to get out of your head and try to see something that inspires you, you that inspires you, a future you, a, a you that's functioning really well. So once you have that, once you've worked on that, once you've sort of worked on what are the values that drive you? Because usually what's happened is, is we work through a period of our life and we have a lot of success with it by doing, sometimes by doing a lot of the shoulds, you know, I should do this and I should do that. And I should get this degree from this university and go and work at that place. And, you know, and it's like badges we accumulate as opposed mm -hmm. to. I see it with the kid's school, like it's so ingrained. It's, it's crazy, crazy yeah. ingrained. And yeah. there's some external standard that you want to comply to as opposed to defining your own of what is something that you'd like to be, something that motivates yourselves. So what is it that I aspire to do, aspire to be? Once you have that, once you start working on that, once you have a clearer vision of that, then you start to say, okay, well, where am I now? How do I change the dial to get there? So, and you don't just base it on what are my weaknesses that I want to improve on because it's not as motivating, but there's sometimes it's like, what strengths do I have as well? So you, it's a balance of both the uh, strengths that you want to capitalize on and weaknesses that you want to gain greater awareness of. And then also it's once you've sort of identified these two aspects, in terms of things that you consider are your weakness, it's, it's important sometimes to get feedback from others. You know, awareness, self-awareness is something that always, you know, helps us and developing us, you know, the way we perceive ourselves and the way others look at us, two separate things, and we have biases and whatever. So it's great to be able to gain greater awareness. You know, when you're triggered, when something goes wrong and you're triggered and then you regret, oh my God, I shouldn't have been so angry or frustrated or whatever. Awareness is this ability to sort of like take that second and pause to see, okay, wait a minute, this has happened. I know I'm going to react like this. So let's just calm down. And I personally, being Greek, <laughs> you know, that, you, that have, you have emotions. The, the escalation from like zero <laughs> to 10 goes really fast. So I, so I sort of, because you always regret it. You, you often regret it. You sort of say, you know, I wouldn't want that because then I have to say, I'm sorry, or, you know, that's not how I want it to come out. So it's seeing how you act and being able to put a pause so that you can actually choose how you want to act and not just be triggered into a certain action. 
And then, of course, it's if you see yourself, like if you have an idea of how you want to be, it's good to choose people around you that reinforce these qualities and these uh, ways of being and that echo that, that stimulate that, that facilitate that. Who you're with plays a big role. You know, your community, it's something that you can be a bit more intentional about. I'm feeling there's a lot of secret sauce you just shared there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is just, awesome. it's easier to say than do, but hey. When Elena was talking about being intentional about the company you keep, maybe think back to Mitch Joel and his little communities he's been building on Facebook. Here's our chat about his willingness to share his time and advice. I want to jump on your generosity of giving time and advice to people. In a bit of research came up with when you were 18, 19 and doing your, your own magazines at that point, Arena Rock and Enrage, were those yeah. your magazines? Yeah, they, they were. That's some good research there. So apparently you, you reached out to a bunch of magazine editors to, to <laughs> yeah. get advice, like you were hounding people. And some did take the time to go through that with you. And I'm just wondering, you know, do you feel that those people who did take the time with you, kind of you felt that's your sort of payback to give back to others in terms of advice and spending the time or was it already there? Well, I mean, it's hard for something like that to be there because you don't feel like, why am I to give advice? Like what have I done? I'm basically like a total loser. And then, yeah, I mean, it was very illuminating that. And again, I, I was working in a magazine store and I basically looked through the mastheads for anybody who had a phone number. And I would just call a bunch of people and say, hey, could you spend time with me? And one person in particular spent a lot of time with me. It was very, very generous. And it really gave me a framework for what had to happen. And yeah, I do remember thinking, I would love to be in a place to be that inspiring to anybody. Like what a gift that is. And I don't think the person thought anything of it. Like I really don't think, I think they were just like, this sounds like a kid who, whatever, I'll just tell him and he probably won't do anything with this information. Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is yes, definitely. In fact, one of the things that I've done while we been here in confinement is I built, I like building private communities and I do them primarily with private Facebook groups. And one that I built recently is for, I'll call them thought leaders, but people who do more than just talking and speak, genuinely put ideas out into the world. And somebody put a, posted a question in there, like, how do you handle the constant requests for someone who wants to pick your brain? And I was just watching the sort of answers come in. It's a small group. It's under 100 people in there. Well, in my world, that's a big group, but that's... <laughs> no, but I mean, in terms of like how yeah, big yeah, groups yeah. can be, it's, it's pretty yeah, yeah. It's being moderated. And my answer that I put in was, I give them the time. Because like, you just never know. I mean, it depends how the ask is and what they're asking and how specific it is and how much work they did. If they've just been carpet bombing anybody who they think has success, and you can see it's like a form letter. I'm more hesitant or I'll make them jump through a couple more hoops to see if it's worth everybody's time. But in general, I try my best to either make some time point them in a direction. If the question is very specific because I've created so much content, I can usually direct them somewhere like, hey, check this out. And if you have more questions, feel free to reach out to me. And it's led to some of you know the greatest... I mean, the story that I'd love to tell now is just, you know, I met a guy who was just at a university, had his law degree, was selling t-shirts online, uh, really enjoyed my content, thought it helped him a lot with his online store. And it's Harley Finkelstein, who's the co-founder of Shopify now. And it's amazing to watch people who, and really people say, he'll say like your mentor, it's like, we're friends. Like we became friends and we genuinely enjoy each other's company and spend time with each other. But when you see that happen at that scale, 
not that I had anything to do with it, but just watching somebody who you know who is just at the beginning become a company like that, it really shows you how it's super important to be there, to be present because you just don't know. And if you collect conversations and if you pride yourself on your network, it's really important. And then the other lesson is people like, oh, you know, these young people is starting out. I mean, they're the future. So why not be a part of the future? So I've always like, I want to meet as many young people as possible because I want to stay relevant. I want to know what's happening in culture. And if you can help with any information you have, what a gift, like what an amazing place to be in life, right? So uh, if you haven't heard of Shopify, uh, check it out. It's Canada's <laughs> most valuable company. Yeah. Thank you. Because it's, it's about a hundred billion dollar public company. now. <laughs> you're a little tired of having banks boring banks, no offense yeah. but at the top, but totally out of curiosity. So when Harley reached out to you, what, what do you want to know? What type of advice was he seeking from you? I think he just wanted to know specifically about digital and the space. It was so early. He felt it, he saw it. And I feel like it was less like older person giving advice because we're not, I mean, he's younger than I, but not that much younger. Yeah. I feel like if I think back on it, it was more, he needed validation. He needed to know that he was heading on the right path. He didn't want to feel like he was, you know, that he was in the wrong world. And I think just, you know, me being who I am and me being so bullish and still am on the space, it gave him a level of comfort. Or when people were saying, that, well, that's stupid, that won't work, you would call me and be like, hey, I was thinking this. And I'd be like, I think that's great. You should totally go for that. Like, why would you not do that? Like, of course, that's where the world is going. And sometimes you just need that. You don't need, yeah, a, just hand, need a pat on the back. Or not even, as I say, sometimes you just need a nod, someone yeah, nodding, yeah. someone just going, yeah. I see what you're saying. And I, or someone who just has the value, right? Like understands your values and what you're trying to do or the values of the business. And you're just going, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Moving from a Mojo Guru and Mitch working behind the scenes to Amy Black from Penguin Random House, who's there to make sure other people's work becomes reality. Here's how an editor deals with the diplomacy needed in giving feedback to an author. So you're, you're working with an author and I'm not saying it happened, but did sometimes they come and they bring it to you and read it and you're just like, this is really stinky or bad. And you got to somehow give them feedback. <laughs> like walk me through yeah, that. Absolutely. You have, well, um, the skill of diplomacy is a really necessary one if you're an editor, but the whole relationship relies on honesty and you have to be able to say to an author that this isn't fulfilling the promise that, you know, their original. Those are the words you use. This is not fulfilling the promise or you're just like, ah, and then they read between the lines that you're not. Well, I think you would probably have a really involved conversation I think you would probably use a lot of examples. I think you really wouldn't be doing anyone any favors by writing out a few terse lines on an email and pressing send. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you might start with something about the original promise that you saw as perhaps being lost because of, and then I think it's, you know, opens up a conversation and probably a welcome one for an author, because often what that will reveal is what their intention is, even if it's not quite being conveyed and what they have so far written, understanding what their ambition and their original intention is, is so 
important and I think can be transformative for a manuscript once both the editor and the author kind of can see eye to eye on what it is they're trying to achieve there. So I, I mean, there are plenty of examples of authors who have started again or who have had a kind of revelation, whether or not it was influenced by their editor, about taking their manuscript in a totally different direction. I don't think there would be an overwhelming number of authors who would say, my final manuscript matches exactly with the plan I had at the outset. And that can often be amazing. You know, it's like it can be even better than what was originally planned for. But are you kind of, as an editor, kind of almost in the end, like even though we give the author the credit, the editor might be part of that creative process and actually bringing it to, may we underestimate the role of editors in great books? I mean, I think there's probably so many different examples, but every good editor knows the book belongs to the author and that any editor who is kind of a frustrated writer, him or herself, is probably not going to do a great job as an editor because they're going to be overly invested in how a plot or some characterization comes together. So I think in an ideal world, and it's often, often achieved, the editor and the author have some kind of alchemy and it really does allow the author to create the best possible book. I mean, you know, there are as many different routes to that as you would find books. So I can't say there's a template for how that relationship works. It's different. But authors and editors become very close and you're really vulnerable as a writer handing over a manuscript and you're really vulnerable as an author having your book published, something that you've lived with for all these years on your own with a very small circle of trusted people that you've invited in and then you release it for everybody's judgment. So in a very small way, I can relate. Like this podcast, by the way, it's extremely embarrassing for me. So I've never listened to my own podcast because the idea of listening to it would just frighten my little boots off. So I just don't want to do that. And Gavin Drummond, a, a creative director, he was in the theater world and film world. And he said, it's actually quite common. A lot of actors and stuff, not pretending I'm even at that level, but they never see their own work or else they would never do another movie again or do whatever. So, I mean, a lot of authors have a policy of not reading reviews of their work, for example. I mean, that's not uncommon. Okay. <laughs> Little anecdote. I actually have a real challenge around writing, or I always did. I had like this discomfort. And so when I was in university, I did a summer program. So I went to Harvard. They had a summer program is like writing about writing. I don't know. It was an immersion in like writing. So you did nonfiction writing and you did fiction writing. And so in my fiction writing course, you'd write short stories, you'd write it and then come in. And, and the, the thing is you give it the end of class or, you know, we're like 10 of us. And then the person takes it away and reads it and then comes back as feedback in the next session. And I remember I'd written this thing, which I kind of liked, you know, because I'd stay up late at night in my little room. It's hot summertime. I'd be drinking beers and writing. I, I felt that I was on to something. But I don't know if it was the beers or whatever, but I thought I was into, you know, I liked it. Anyway, so this guy read it. <laughs> And he's like, this is how he gave the feedback. I really couldn't stand it. I hated the character. I hated everything about it. <laughs> That's how you put it out there. He's not an editor. He's not an editor to be. But you know what the teacher said? No, this is my moment of glory. Let's hear it. The teacher, who was a published dude, not books, but short stories in like in the New Yorker or whatever. So some credentials. I was like, actually, I really liked it. It's a good sign that you hated it. <laughs> well, it's a good point. All criticism is not created equal. So sometimes, you know, if you get panned by the right person, it's sort of an indirect compliment. Yeah, there we go. 
Now, if you want to talk about indirect compliments, my conversation with Christiane Germain definitely started out that way before we talk more in depth about the DNA of her hotels. I'm going to share a little anecdote that I shared with Christiane the other day, because on a personal front, she didn't realize this, but Le Germain has played a big role in my life. When I started Cloudraker 20 years ago, I didn't have an office. So I would go and use the hotel on Mansfield in Montreal, use the lobby to meet people, try and recruit clients, recruit people. And I just said, oh, it's a nice central place to meet. And I would drink the free coffee, (laughs) eat the apples, and did that for a little while. So you played a big part in the starting and founding of Cloudraker. And there's another moment, by the way, is three years after starting the business, went on a business trip to Toronto. And say Le Germain. And I'm I'm not blowing any BS here. It was the first moment I felt that I was getting successful because I was staying at Le Germain and it was a I, I felt good. And it was interesting. I shared the hotel room with my business partner because we were still keeping an eye on our costs. That's great. But when you stayed in Toronto, you actually paid for your hotel room. You, you paid for the room, right? You didn't Absolutely. Stay there for no, free, no, 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 There was nothing. <laughs> There's been nothing free since, and I think I've paid for that coffee and apples many times over because you are a go-to hotel. So don't worry. You- it's a nice story, and you know what? I'm when you told me about it. You know, it's nice to know that you help in a certain way. You know, you help someone starting his his own business. You know, yeah. so you actually were in a way part of it. So that's great. You should have asked for shares. You know, where's your <laughs> where's your dividend? Probably, probably. But I was too busy running my own business. Absolutely. So look, you've been, uh, I forget the name in French, but you've done the Dragon's Den thing. Uh, Uh, Dans l'œil du dragon. Oui, dans l'œil du dragon. Do you think the advice you give some of the the startups, would you change whatever advice in thinking now? No. It's the same? Same? No. Not there. No, because I mean, the, the companies, the entrepreneurs that actually come to uh, Dragon's Den or Dans l'œil du Dragon, they're starting. And I guess before COVID or after, the advices you would give to a small company that starts, to me, are the same. You know, if you really believe in what you, in the idea you have and you think you can do it and you, you have to have this kind of energy, this is still, I think it's still true. You know, and I think they're great. There are going to be some great opportunities for people who want to start businesses. When I talk with my teams and talk about different things we should do, and, and I always go back to when we started. And it, I keep telling them, you know, I don't want to sound like an older, <laughs> but you have, and I, and I remember when we opened the hotel in Montreal, the one you actually... Uh, stole your coffee and and I remember what my thinking was when I started that hotel and how I was working and I communicate that to the team because I I'm telling them now I'm telling them you know this is this is what I had in mind when we started this company can you bring us into that a little what was going on in your mind at, at that period I wanted to offer our guests a good quality product with no frills, but really be close to them and being attentionate to them and listening to what they wanted. So, and I wanted to, to give them a good, the value for me was very, very important value for their money. And I think this is what we have to go back to 
not that the value wasn't there before COVID. It was there, but we have to work harder in getting them a better value for their money. Because people are, I think, people will be, I mean, the frills, what we call the frills, like the concierge services and turndown services and all that stuff won't be that important for a while. It's going to be, we go back to the real thing. And I don't think people will have the same kind of money. I don't think they will spend the same way. I think they will want to have a good human experience because they have been out of human touch. They have been out mm -hmm. of, so they will be looking for human touches and, and the real stuff, not the things, not the showing off stuff, the real, you know, the real attention. And I remember when we started, that's what I had in mind. And that's what I keep telling them. This is what we're going to have to do. That's really interesting. So when you started the, the hotel in Quebec City, did it have that or it was kind of what you learned through that? And then when you did your first expansion, you said, okay, this is important, this element. I think it had that in a way because we were doing it, right? It was yeah. our business and we were doing it. And it's when we came to Montreal that we had to start finding out what's our DNA, you know, what is it that is different than the other one? And it became very clear to me that we had a, a good product quality, lots of quality. I mean, we've always been about quality, but at the same time, it, for me, it was the real good human spirit it was very, very important and no, like no frills, no, the frills came afterwards. Because then people started asking for this for and asking for thing. that and the extra. And so in order to give the extras, you had to raise the prices a little bit. And we did it and it's fine. But I think we're going to go back to a little less. But as I said, I think the human touch is going to be very important. And there you have it. I want to thank all our guests for coming on the show and sharing their insights on how to get and maintain their mojo. You know, with everything that's going on right now, mojo is more important than ever. Here at the podcast, we definitely found these conversations around mojo useful. And if you feel there's someone out there that could use a little mojo, why don't you share this podcast? I'd like to thank my crew, Xavier, Gisela, Mark, Gavin, and the rest of the team in Cloudraker who keep the lights on while we have the time of our life chatting with great people. Take us away. The final time of the season is Chris Vellman. Take care, everybody. And we'll see you again for season two of the Mojo Moments podcast.